can you kids just give me one minute, please? That's how I finished my little rant uh, this week. Uh, I was very upset with my kids. I had told them multiple times, please stop. I, I did everything. I, I did all the tactics of a hostage negotiation. Yet they would not listen, and I felt so bad, and I was just like, I'm hungry, I'm tired, and then all of a sudden I'm like, can you just give me one minute, please? And then I look over, and they all just zip it. And my son actually starts tearing up. And a little bit later, I go to Judah, and I go, and I'm sorry, I shouldn't have bursted out like that in anger towards you. And that night, I I go, hit my head hits the pillow, and I just start reliving that moment, because that's not who I want to be. That's not how I want my kids to remember me. I don't want them to feel shame, and I don't want to yell at them. I don't want to come across as angry towards them. But there's this part of me of just who I once was that kind of comes out here and there, and I just have this overwhelming sense of regrets. You ever felt regret before? You ever done something and you just kind of, you can't go to bed. You just like feel like nauseous inside of you. I'm a... Enneagram 7, if you don't know the Enneagram, we're like the happy-go-lucky, everything's good, life of the party. So when we have regret and we feel regret, you know what we do? We take that regret and we stuff it way down deep and we try to go really fast so we never think about our regret, yet it still catches up with me when I slow down. I can feel like the weight of my regret. I can look through my life and be like, why did I do that? I was so foolish. I don't know if you're here with me today, and maybe you feel just like me, regret. There was a study that came out through Daniel Power's book, uh, The Power of Regret. They did this comprehensive study of almost 5,000 Americans, and they researched this idea of regret. And did you know that Americans regret more than we floss? Not this, but floss. I'm not going to tell you which one I am, but I regret a lot. I have a lot of regrets in my life. In that study, they also kind of boiled down our regret to four things. There's four major regret categories that all of us carry throughout our lives. And I want to share those four with you really quick. The first is a foundational regret. This is a regret when we refuse to be responsible, prudent, leading to a loss of opportunities later in life. This is a regret maybe you have in high school. Like for me, I wish I'd have tried way more in high school. Like I was a pretty smart guy, but I would procrastinate. I would do my homework for the next class in the class I was currently at. And I kept doing that over and over again. I made it through, got pretty good grades, but I didn't really discipline myself. And then what happens like, the okay, so two weeks ago, I don't know why I do this dad moment, but I decided I need to start researching colleges for my kids. There are 11, 8, and 6, but I still need to know what's out there. So I'm kind of like, you know, I want a college that is worth the price. So I, I type in best college ROIs. Like what do you put the best, like what costs the least and what will you get the most from it? Little did I find out, I found this out. Any school of minds people in here? One, okay, the, the one intelligent one of us all. You are in the top 10 ROI schools. Congratulations, congratulations. You made a good choice in your college. Everybody went to see you, Boulder. You're like 320. But anyway, top five were like military academies, Air Force Academy. And all of a sudden I started going, my son needs to go to the Air Force. Because I, when I watch Top Gun, 
I had all this massive regret. I was like, I should have freaking been a fighter pilot. Like, that is awesome. And all it would take is just some discipline, some hard work. And so I do what any good parent does. I vicariously live through my children. So that next day, Judah wakes up and I get out like airplane photos like this. And I'm like, dude, wouldn't it be awesome if someday you could fly that? And I showed him videos like, he was like, oh, that's awesome. I'm like, well, this is the Air Force Academy. And if you try really hard and you're disciplined, I wasn't disciplined. I could have gone there. Probably not. But <laughs> you could go there. What do I have? A foundational regret. I have a regret that I wish I had have done more when I was younger. A lot of us have foundational regrets that we look at. Another regret that you might have is a boldness regret. A boldness regret. This is just a pain of a missed opportunity we didn't take because we were fearful. We were scared to do it. You're like, I should have asked that girl out. Why didn't I do it? I should have taken that investment opportunity. Oh, my goodness. I was thinking about this the other day. I, I had a buddy that had his parents' house was going for sale in Wilderness in Silverthorne, Summit County, I, five or six years ago. And he's like, dude, we should buy this together. We don't have to have an agent. They're going to sell us at, like, way under market. I'm like, eh, I'm not going to do that. I didn't want to take the risk. Now I look back and I'm like, I regret that. It's probably quadrupled in price of what I was going to pay because I didn't have, I was fearful of what might happen. Do you have a boldness regret? For some of us, you might have a moral regret. It's basically where we violate, violate or compromise our core convictions or values. I look back to my high school years and college years. I'm so glad there was no iPhones. I'm so glad no one filmed me. I'm so glad no one has a record of what I've thought, I've said, I've done. And honestly, when I think of myself as up here speaking to you guys today as a pastor, I go, Man, I think that would really hurt my influence if you guys knew where I was at in high school and college. And I start thinking about it. I'm like, why did I do that? And this sense of shame takes over my life. The last regret that they put us in is one of connection regrets, and that is a failure to tend to vital relationships leading to lost love, severed connections, and shallowed friendships. You ever had a lost love or a connection that went bad? For me, a few years ago, uh, it was like five years, six years ago, I had a relationship, a really good friendship, and I knew there was something between me and this other person, and I knew there was something up, so I go, hey, are we good? Is there something going on here? And you know what they told me? Yeah, we're good. But in my soul, I knew we weren't good. But I was like, oh, I'll just be positive. It'll be fine. It'll go away. Five years down the road, they get incredibly bitter with me. And there's a bitterness that pulls up and it's rooted up and it destroys our friendship. And I have not talked to that person to this day from that moment. And I look back and I regret that because I love that person. They were a deep, deep friend, and I don't have it anymore. I look at my life, and I go, I feel all those regrets. Have you ever felt regret in your life? And if you have, I want to bring you some hope today. I want us to look at our, as we're studying the book of Acts, I want to show you how Paul actually uses his regret and how it changes his life, and what does he do? And so I want to kind of set up the story. We've been in Acts, and we're going through this. Uh, you know, the other speakers get like 12 verses. They give me like 57 verses. So I'm not going to read all 57 verses, but we're in basically chapter 21 and 22. I'll give you an overarching kind of theme, and we'll pull out some 
verses from us. So here's what's going on. Paul is in Jerusalem. All of a sudden, the whole town is stirred up. It seems like this is over and over and over again. Every town gets stirred up because they're frustrated that Paul is proclaiming the things of Jesus. And as he proclaims the things of Jesus, a mob begins to form, and they start beating Paul. And then the Roman guards hear this as control of the city, and they go, we have to stop this mob. So they pull Paul out, and that's where we jump in to our story. And as we read this, I just want you to listen to Paul and maybe even the regrets that he is going to bring up here in a moment. It says this, the commander, the Roman commander, he came up and he arrested him, Paul, and ordered him to be bound with two chains, not the rapper, two chains. Old people, there's a rapper named Two Chains. Anyway, then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing, some another. And since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that kept that followed kept shouting, get rid of him. It's a pretty crazy scene. So Paul's getting carried away going to jail after he's gotten beaten, and they just want to destroy Paul. So uh, Paul does what only Paul can do, is he gets in a conversation after he's beaten and uh, talks to this Roman guard as they're taking him out, and he convinces him to stop everybody and allow Paul to speak to the crowd. See, Paul was always like, Hey, let me at him. Let me talk to him. I want to share what Jesus has done in my life. i got to share. And so he convinces this, this soldier to allow him to speak to the crowd. And this is where we hear, pick up on Paul's story. And over the next uh, basically 21 verses, we're going to see Paul share the story of him coming to faith and the transformation that happened. In verse 3, chapter 22, it says this. This is Paul speaking. I am a Jew. Born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, I studied under, studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as many of you are today. I persecuted the followers of the way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. As the high priest and all the council can t- themselves testify, I even obtained letters from them to associate their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. Here's what Paul's doing. Paul is giving his rap sheet. Paul is going, this is who I am. He goes, first off, you guys are all trying to kill me. I'm this like Pharisee of Pharisees. He calls himself in another place. But he goes, you know what? I own this city. This is my city. I didn't grow up somewhere else. This is my city. Secondly, I studied under the most prolific rabbi of the last century. You you know how zealous I am? You know how much law I know? You know how bought to the vision of destroying the way I was? I was willing to see people murdered. I was willing not just to see men, but women also. And I was on a crusade to destroy the following of the way. At this moment in Paul's life, he has been transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. And as he thinks about his life, and he replays some of those moments, do you think he might have some regrets? He watched people get murdered. His brothers and his sisters, he has blood all over his hands. If you're in here today and you feel like you have some regret. Paul had a ton of regrets in his life. 
as you think even of your life, you play the movie of your life from birth to currently, and the regrets start coming up, what do we do with that regret? What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to handle that? There's really two options I want to propose today. One, I think, is the option the world proposes, and the second is the option that God gives us a solution. But the first way that we kind of deal with our regret is it's a regret that eventually will lead to shame. Regret that leads to an examination of all the wrong things you've done and all the what-ifs that I shouldn't have done and a desire just to forget it. When I had that connection regret, when I look at my relationship with that brother, that friend that I was just, oh, I wish I had back, I would stay up at night, and I still at times do. And it feels like this dread overcomes my soul. And I feel this, like, pressure. I feel like I couldn't breathe. And as it first started, I feel like I couldn't eat. I couldn't, I would replay the situation over and over again. How it actually manifested in me is I would try to eat some food, and I would just vomit. I had all this self-talk that was terrible to myself, and it just led me to complete and utter shame. When I looked in the mirror, I was just shameful of what could have been, what should have been, and who I was. Also, what a regret that leads to shame looks like is just a denial of wrongdoing. It goes, ah, you know, I'm, I'm good, I'm fine. Like, that wasn't that big a deal. You ever hear, like, movie stars get up or athletes? I have no regrets. No regrets? Come on. We all have regrets. But we can just say, oh, I, I believe nothing I've done is wrong. Or I, I, I've done everything perfect. A prominent view in our culture is this. We take our regrets, and instead of placing shame on ourselves, I place my shame on you. And so I don't want to feel that shame, so I'm going to blame and shame you, which is both condemnation, which is not of God. It says that there is no condemnation if you are in Christ Jesus. So it gives us the second option, what we must do with our regret. And I believe this is the godly option. It is that of a regret that leads to restoration. Not a regret that leads to shame and condemnation, but a regret that leads to restoration. I love that our church's name is Restoration. It's saying that we believe that Jesus is going to restore your life. When you have an interaction with King Jesus, when you give him control, there's a restoration process that happens, that you become in knowledge of him and you get to know him. And it's not that you become perfect, but that you get a relationship of love with him. Restoration's definition, not our personal one, but the Webster's Dictionary says this. It's a bringing back to a former position or condition. God made mankind, humankind, all of us, to be in a perfect relationship with him. But when sin entered the world, it was broken. Restoration looks like it's bringing back to that condition. It's bringing back to a knowledge of God and a relationship with God where there's no more walls between you and God and there's freedom with God and there is no shame or condemnation. In 2 Corinthians 7.10, Paul actually says this as well. It says, godly sorrow, it brings repentance that leads to salvation and what? Leaves no regrets. But worldly sorrow, it brings death. 
What godly sorrow is, it's going, okay, I know that I'm going the wrong direction, and I know that I'm not following after Jesus. I know that I'm kind of making myself Lord of over, over my life. And then it's a repentance, and it's going towards God. It's not perfection towards God, but it's a seeking of God and making Jesus Lord over your life. And it will bring you salvation because we need saved. And what that does is that will lead to no regret. When we live life in that manner with a godly sorrow that is of repentance, we will have no regret. But a lot of us still live in a worldly sorrow that brings death. That's why you feel the shame, the condemnation, the the frustration of life. And today my hope for you is to give you kind of three ways that you can take all the regret that you experience and you can be restored in your life. And God can use it to change you. So as we look at Paul, I want to just show you his three actions that he took for restoration in his regret. And the first thing that he did is he embraced his story. If you want to restore restoration in your life, if you don't want shame in your life, you have to embrace the story that God's given to you. Paul did not hide his guilt, his pain, his problems. For most of us, we want to like sweep under the rug all the stuff we've done, put it there, never talk about it again. What does Paul do? Paul embraced that he had blood on his hands. He embraced his story. He embraced that God was transforming his life. We'll pick up in verse 6. He continues on with his story in front of this mob, and he says this. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven, it flashed around me. I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord, I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions, they saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I replied. Get up, the Lord said. Go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you've been assigned to do. My companions, they led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light, it had blinded me. A man named Ananias, he came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and he said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. And then he said, the God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all people of what you've seen and heard. And now what are you waiting for? Get up. Be baptized, wash your sins away, calling on his name. Paul, killer of Christians, blood on his hands, regret in his heart, all of a sudden sees a bright light and it blinds him. Paul was not just blinded physically, he was blinded spiritually. He did not know who Jesus was. He did not know what Jesus had to offer. And all of a sudden he has this interaction with Jesus and he's healed from his physical blindness and he's also healed of his spiritual blindness and he goes Jesus is Lord Jesus is King he says I repent of this and he goes I'm going to call on his name and I'm going to repent and I am going to be baptized and at that moment his life was changed forever do you see how Paul embraces the story of his life he doesn't try to hide it he's not shameful he goes no it's the magnificent of Jesus that I'm portraying I'm showing it through my life because Jesus did a massive work in my life and I want others to know about it. For regrets to turn to restoration in your life, you must realize one thing. 
you don't do the restoration process. Jesus does. You can't work hard enough. You can't prove yourself enough. You can't earn it. But Jesus comes into your life as you are desperate and full of regret, and he changes your life. We live in a society where we uplift like the self-made millionaires and billionaires, and we talk about the grind culture and how hard they work, and we study, and we like show them, we're like, oh, they're amazing. Look how much they have done. And we tend to take that same philosophy over to following Jesus. Look how much they've done. Look how much they've read. Look how much they know about Jesus. No, 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 no. Following Jesus is not a self-made faith. It is a spirit-led faith where Jesus interacts with you and changes your life forever. He says that he makes you new, that he justifies you. You cannot justify yourself. You have done wrong. Your regret is true. You cannot write that off. But Jesus can. He can justify you. I kind of think Jesus is the only self-made billionaire spiritually in the world. He came as a man and God, and he is full. He has all the riches of the kingdom of heaven and earth, and he gives it away. And here's what he did on the cross. We, in this room, each and every one of us, we are like broke. We got no money. You got nothing. Not even are you broke, you're in debt. You owe millions and millions of dollars. You can't pay it on your own. Jesus then dies on the cross. And when he, with his blood and his resurrection and his power, he pays for your debt and your nothingness. You've done nothing to deserve his love, but he pays for it. And a lot of times we stop right there. He paid for your sin. But not only does he pay for your sin. You don't go to net zero in the bank account. He actually makes you a son and a daughter. He says you're adopted into the kingdom. Now you're a signer for me. You can have all the riches. You can have all the kingdom. You can do anything you want. You have my blessing. You have my power. You have my sonship. You have my daughtership. It is in you now. That is the hope that we have in Jesus you know that it cost him a lot? As I think of the cost that it took our Savior to do what he just did. Because we neglect it so quickly. We go, oh yeah, that's true. It cost him so much. Not just did it cost his life, but it cost his pride. It cost him being king. Can you imagine the humility it took of Jesus, the creator? He was there when this earth was formed. And he knew the exact tree that was that he was on, that he helped create that tree, and now he's hung on the tree. The metal that was made for the nails that stuck through his hands, he's like, I created that metal. The Roman soldier that hit his hands over and over again, he goes, I knew you when you're in your mother's womb. The cost of our Savior was great. This is why Paul embraces the story. He embraces his regret. He embraces his problems Because Jesus is the author of the story, not Paul himself. Do you embrace the regret in your life? Because it's a beautiful testimony of the power of Jesus. If you saw what my life was like when I was 18, you'd be like, Jesus has done a massive work in Jason's life. 
He's done a massive work in each of your own lives. And so we don't just hide in shame. We go, no, this is who I am. This is what God has done. And it changes us. Freedom of shame comes from a release of control. If you want freedom of your shame, you release control. And some of you in here might be wrestling with following Jesus and you have never released control of your life. There's shame still in that. You can have freedom. You can have restoration in your life. All it takes is just like Paul to call upon the name of the Lord. And today, if you're in here and you're like, that is some decision I want to make. I've been holding back, but I want to make it. We're going to have a prayer team in the back that I would love to pray for you. And if you've been putting off baptism and you're like, oh, I need to get baptized. Or maybe I was baptized as a kid, didn't really know what it meant, but I just did it. And I would encourage you, just like Paul, take that step of baptism. Get baptized. It's our first step of obedience. So we are not just to hide in our shame. We are to embrace our story so that God can restore us. The second thing that we learn from Paul is not just embrace your story, but we live our story. We live it out. We have to live with the life that we have. There's this uh, famous movie in the, I think it came out in 99. Some of you weren't alive at that time, but it was called Magnolia, not Chip and Joe, but a different Magnolia. That was a joke. You're supposed to laugh. Thank you. When I talk about shame, people don't want to laugh too much. Uh, This quote resonates. Listen to this. We may be through with the past, but the past isn't through with us. We may be through with the past, but the past isn't through with us. If you're like me, as you take that step of faith in relationship with Jesus, you're like, okay, all right, new creation. Like, here we go. I'm different. I'm different. I'm going the race with God. But all of a sudden, sometimes your past kind of creeps up on you a little bit and you got to live with the regret. You got to live with your past. You got to live with your mistakes. It's like when I yelled at my kids, I was actually pretty angry when I was in high school and college. And that past kind of came out of me. It's almost what the Bible would call our flesh, that it it just comes out when we don't want it, when we're like, oh, I don't want to do that. And it can feel so condemning and, and just miserable to live in. So what does it mean to live this story? Three years later, after Acts 22 happened, Paul penned a book called 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy 1, 15, it says this. This is Paul saying, it's again, three years after our Acts passage. It says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. All right, what are we supposed to accept? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I'm am the worst. See what Paul sees of himself? Three years after this journey of getting beat, he goes, I'm the worst sinner. Another translation says, I'm the chief of all sinners. When Paul looks at his life to the glory of God and he continually knows Jesus, he goes, the more I go closer to God, the more I realize how far I am away from his holiness. So what does that mean for us? We have to live out the story we're in. And what I see happen so many times is that we live in regret and we live in hardship. And, you know, one of the things, I think this is so funny. So here's one thing that sucks about communicating up here, especially being a pastor. You guys all come up to me when I share about my mistakes, my regret, and you're like, oh, my gosh, Jason, that spoke to me so much. And then if I tell you, hey, I was in the Bible seven times out of seven this week. I read for an hour, and I got up at 5 a.m. and prayed. Ain't nobody comes to me like, oh, Jason, that spoke to me. Oh, that spoke to me. No. You guys love my regret and my mistakes. Why is that? 
because you see the humanity in each and every one of us. We know that we are not perfected on this side of heaven, but we have to deal with our flesh. We have to deal with the old self inside of us. And he goes, well, if Jason deals with that, I could deal with that. Your mistakes are maybe your most powerful thing that you have working for you. It can change people's lives is when we live out the story, we share our mistakes. Um, Molly, my wife, and I, we just finished like a whole restoration project of a house. It was an old, uh, 100-year-old house. And this is what the house looked like before we did some restoration. So uh, kitchen, the kitchen was actually through there. So we knocked that wall down. That's the living room. And then spent nine months, and this is what the house looks like now. No, it looks very different, doesn't it? Beautiful. Oh, thank you. Uh, Molly designed it all. I just uh, put in the sweat equity for it. So I, I look at this house, and I'm like, oh, man, look what we did, how awesome it is. Look where it came from. Look what's happening. It's a lot like our spiritual lives. When, when you start following Jesus, you go, that's who I once was. And then you start working it out. And you're like, man, it's becoming beautiful, and it's becoming awesome. Yet my house is not a scrape. It's a restoration. So if you look at it, next picture, there's this bar that goes across the front of my house. I thought about hiding it because I was like, ah, I don't want people to see that. I can't get rid of it because it's holding the house together. It's two little plates on the side of the brick. The structural engineer said, you keep that tight and the house won't fall over. Okay, check. We won't get rid of that. So I had to leave it there. And then we're like, oh, we'll put some plants on it. We'll trim it out. And then it landed at the exact wrong spot of our trim. And I'm like, oh, what do we do? Now I kind of love it. Because every time I pass by that, I go, this was an old house. It's still got some problems. It's not perfect. But it's pretty good. It, it reminds me of myself. I have to accept who I am, that I'm never going to hit perfection on this side of heaven. Now, I do follow a direction. It doesn't mean that I'm always like, oh, I'm never going to be changed. But there is a direction that I am headed. And every day we live out our story. God gives us the strength, and he restores us in our regret. The enemy, though, he wants to destroy you with this. When you follow Jesus, this is maybe the hardest thing to deal with, is when you mess up and you're a follower of Jesus because you just feel like a terrible person. You feel the weight on you, and you feel disappointment towards God. But the Bible says there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. That is not true. That is not how we should feel, but yet the enemy will use it. And I believe there's so many people in this room right now that are disqualifying yourself because of the regrets you've had this last week, this last month, this last year. You know, because I've done that, I can't do that. And I want to tell you a secret today that is true, is what you think disqualifies you actually qualifies you. What you think disqualifies you actually qualifies you. We are not perfected. Jesus is the one that qualifies you. Jesus is the one that did the work. Jesus is the one that lives inside of you. You do not have to keep yourself up and make it, oh, I got to be better. I got to be better. I got to be better. No, Jesus is transforming you and he's doing the work. And it's a slow work, but it's a transforming work. And as you look back, you see progress every day. I want to give you hope. Do not allow your regret of today to disqualify you for today. That is not the way of Jesus. What if Paul had looked at his life at that moment when he got called, the blind lights hit him, and he goes, well, I just killed a bunch of Christians. I, I can't go. 
I can't get up and go be your messenger. You, you got the wrong guy. Typically the wrong guy is the guy that God always uses. I'm the wrong guy. I'm the wrong guy. But God has been so good to me. He's loved me so deeply. I'm so thankful that he's transformed me and I get to live the life. And even in my regret, that he might transform me and restore me. Maybe for you, one of those regrets is foundational. Maybe it's moral. Maybe it's a boldness regret. Maybe it's a connection regret. If you're in here and you're going, oh, I have a moral regret. Like I've done something recently that Jesus does not like say I should be doing or you're like, it's putting pressure on you. I love Proverbs 24, 16 because it says this, for though the righteous fall seven times, they get back up. Though the righteous fall seven times, they get back up. It's not you will not fall The righteousness is not of yourself anyway, it's of Jesus. But the righteousness that Jesus gives you, he gives you the power to stand back up and keep going. We are going towards Jesus. We're not falling and staying in our shame and condemnation. We're being restored and we're becoming more and more like Jesus. So if you're in a moral regret, know that, that you stand up. If you're dealing with connection, I think it's so silly. I I saw some friends and we have been trying to get with these friends for one year on our calendar, and we still have not got together. Did you know, it's so hard to get with people nowadays. You're like, man, it's so hard to build connection. And that convicted me a couple weeks ago, especially when it comes to making disciples and simple church, because really, simple church secret is not organizational, it's relational. All great connection that God has for us, I believe, is more relational than organizational. It's just like church. Jesus is more relational than organizational. And I go, we're just not getting the connection and relational ability we want as a family. So we work like all day long. So our nights are with our kids. It's hard to, hard to do things, but we're like, we have to sacrifice time at night to get connection. So Molly and I, we were on vacation. We're like, we got to get more connection time. So we go, okay, Mondays, we're going to make family night. We'll hang out with our kids, get great connection with family. Tuesday nights, we're going to push and we're going to make simple church. We're going to connection with our simple church. Wednesday nights, we're just going to open up as a family and we're going to say, we want to have people over to our house to eat dinner. We want to connect with them. And that was just a big step for us to go, okay, we have to develop in our connection because Jesus is calling me to live this out. And I don't want to regret in the past, but he's calling me to take steps forward. So I had to change my schedule. I don't know about you, but where is a time in your life where you need to live out your story? You need to figure out how do you deal with your moral regret, maybe your connection regret. What step could you take? And lastly, I'll close with this as we look in Paul's life. The key to Paul's success was he embraced his story, didn't sweep it under the rug. He lived it out. He saw his sin and he continually allowed Jesus to transform. And third is he shared his story. If you want restoration in your life, you have to share what God's done in your life. You have to share how g- your regret. You have to share God's redemption, his restoration. Regret really becomes full circle to restoration when you share it with someone else, when you use it to help someone. This is exactly what we see Paul do. In verse 17, it says this. He finishes his story and he goes, when I returned to Jerusalem, And was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem immediately because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. 
Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Did you catch it? Paul in his regret, Jesus tells him to go share it to share the goodness of God, to share his story, that it might be an encouragement. It might change someone else's life. Yet Satan really doesn't want you to do this. Satan wants, is like using your regret, and it's like, a, it's like a sword. And you may have felt this. This is what shame feels like. It's slowly piercing your heart, and you feel terrible, and you feel miserable, and you feel like you can't breathe. Do you want to know what to do with that regret? Because when you share your story, you pull that out and you go, what Satan meant for evil to kill me, to destroy me, to add shame. I'm going to take that sword into the enemy. I'm going to use my story to impact others. I'm going to use what God has done in my life, how I was a wretch and now I am made like Jesus, when you take that sword and you use it, it is one of the most powerful things that this world can experience. And Satan does not want you doing this. You're going to leave here today and be like, I'm not sharing my story. Please? Would you please share it? This is my good friend, Blake Brewer. Uh, actually, one of my best friends. Love that guy a ton. Uh, when he was 18 years old, he actually was uh, on a family vacation with his, fa- with his whole family and his, him and his dad. They were in Oahu and they went uh, uh, snorkeling. And his dad is amazing in shape. He actually played tight end in the NFL. He was unbelievably in shape. And so Blake and his dad are out there swimming, snorkeling, having a great time. And all of a sudden, this riptide starts pulling at them. And Blake is super big guy, strong. He starts fighting it, and he sees his dad struggling. And he goes, he tries to go after his dad, but he knows that if he goes after his dad, he can't make it anymore. So finally, Blake grabs a big rock and is holding up there in the waves, and he watches his dad slowly float away and then float under the water. And he's screaming at the top of his lungs to lifeguards, come, help, help. The lifeguards come out as fast as they can, and at that moment, they realize that his dad is not going to make it, and he died on that beach that day. Can you imagine being an 18-year-old and the regret that you would have? What if? What if I had to save my dad? I watched him drown. But that's not the end of the story. That same night, Blake is on the edge of his bed, the hotel room, hands in his face, crying and his mom walks in he goes Blake your dad would have wanted you to have this he goes it's a letter of all the mistakes he's made and all the lessons he's learned and he's been working on it for months and he wanted you to have it so Blake takes it and he starts reading it and it just changes Blake's life and he goes I'm going to live like that I'm going to live like that and all of his dad's regrets get passed on his lessons to Blake not the end of the story every single day now you know what Blake does he shares his story 
He has a organization called Legacy Letter where he's on a mission to help a million dads write a letter like his dad wrote for him. You never know what life is gonna happen. And he trains men to write letters, to pass on lessons to their kids. And every day, you know what Blake has to do? He has to get up like this and share the hardest time of his life, the greatest regret. Yet, God uses it mightily. Your regret, your shame, your pain, God wants to use it, embrace it, live it, share it. Would you pray with me? God, I know, I sense your presence here today. Lord, I pray right now you'd minister to some people that may have been living in some condemnation and some shame and some guilt and regret. God, I pray if there's someone here right now that has never made that decision, that goes, I've never made Jesus Lord of my life. God, I pray that they would make that decision. And if you're here today, as we continue in this attitude of prayer, I just want to talk to you for a second. If you're here and you've never made a decision to trust Jesus, to go all in, to go, I'm going to repent. I'm going to make him Lord. He will bring salvation to you. All it takes is a simple crying out to him, a prayer that says, God, I know that I can't make it on my own. I know that I need Jesus. I know that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. And if that is you today, all you have to do is say that prayer that, God, I need you. And if you say that prayer, I would invite you to just talk to someone afterwards. Or we have a prayer team in the back that would love to pray for you. God, I just pray right now that we would put our regrets at your feet and you would restore us. In your son's name, amen.